Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Melanie Finn. She is the author of Away From You, The Gloaming, which was a New York Times notable book, and The Underneath. Her latest novel is The Hair, which is published by our friends at $2 Radio. Melanie, welcome to the program. Hi, Jason. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And Melanie, before we jump into your new novel, The Hair, I want to talk about your publisher, $2 Radio. I am hoping you can tell us how you got connected with the wonderful folks over there and how your relationship with them as a publisher has progressed over the course of three novels. I um, I first came to them um, with my with the second book, which was published in the UK, Shame. Um, we couldn't find a, UK, a US publisher. And my editor at Weinfeld Nicholson in the UK contacted Eric directly and wrote him a very passionate letter. Mm-hmm. Sorry, just to say, if you hear a strange noise in the background, mm-hmm. it's our pet turkey and she's looking for me right now. So that's just a disclaimer about that yeah. in the background. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, so, that's how I came to Eric and he renamed shame the gloaming and it did so much better over here. And I found that I really loved working with a small independent publisher. My experience with big publishing houses had not been great. And it was really easy to get lost in the shuffle. If your book wasn't a success kind of immediately, um, you know, you just kind of be dropped. Whereas with Eric and Eliza, not only are they like the most amazing people, in the publishing world, if you ask me, and just incredibly humane individuals, but um, and great cooks, um, but they um, they really follow your book. And then so um, we did the underneath, and then when the hair came out last last year, when I finished writing it in January, Eric said, "I'm totally snowed under. You know, if you want to shop this to anybody else, you should go ahead." And I just wrote back, "I'm like Eric, there is nobody on this planet that they want to work with other than you. They could like why?" So. Um, I just, I love them. I love their ethos. I love, I mean, the fact that Eric and Eliza do the artwork for their books and this beautiful cover that they've given me, I just find them really extraordinary people. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. It is a wonderful cover. Um, <clears throat> listeners, you can't see it as I'm holding it up right now, but I am holding it up to a camera. So Rebecca uh, can see it there in the background. Um, I bring up $2 radio as I always do in speaking with someone who is published with them because as a member of the $2 Radio Tattoo Club, the first member, I think, who wasn't directly involved with them as an owner, publisher, or author, uh, I've always gotten a finished copy of every book they publish, which means three of yours now. Um, the last one, I believe, which was in hardcover, the only hardcover to my knowledge that they have ever published, um, And I would love uh, at some point in the future to have you back on to talk about those. Uh, But Melanie, let's jump into this magnificent new novel, The Hair. Uh, One of my favorite things to read and one of my favorite things to write really is a story about art or based on a work of art. The protagonist of this novel is an artist. The title of the novel um, is referenced in a painting that is part of this text. Uh, can you tell us about this painting featuring the hair and about how the art world pervades every corner of this wonderful novel? So I had studied uh, history of art uh, at NYU back in the back in the 80s. And 
for me, it was a way of understanding the world. And so when I came up with this character, Rosie, who was very naive, um, very isolated, um, it seemed to me that this was a way that she could make sense of the world as well. So the painting, um, as Eric uh, Obanoff, Two Dollar Radio, discovered, doesn't actually exist. Apparently, he spent hours on the web <laughs> looking for it. And it's based on the Arnolfini wedding painting by Van Eyck, which is very famous. And I just need to point out that the that the man in this Arnolfini painting looks exactly like Vladimir Putin. Spooky, mm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so, um, and and the, and I remember studying about the painting that that uh, you know was at a time in in art world where where artists were really moving away from doing strictly religious work and really starting to look at traders and households and even servants were starting to be depicted. So, the idea of this wealthy couple and what was if you look at some of the other Van Eyck paintings, what what is starting to happen in the background is that this life of servants is being exposed and and uh, in kind of included as something that that might be worth um, scrutiny. So Rosie obviously comes from the quote unquote servant class, and she is allowed into this um, this wealthy world. So so the painting sort of became a bit of a portal for me. And there's another pay another I think it's Van Eyck and I searched everywhere for it, where there is a picture of one of the Dutch and Flemish masters of a maid in a doorway in the background. I think she's carrying something, it's not a hair. But yes, I made it up. So if anybody's looking for it, it only exists in my imagination. Yeah, someone needs to to paint that, I think, Melanie. Um, you reference Bruegel's Icarus, which is referencing the painting Landscape with the Fall of Icarus, a painting that has been referenced in literature, poetry, and prose more than once. Uh, do you, Melanie, have any favorite works of literature that are either completely or partially influenced by an artist or a specific work of art? Wow, Jason. Now that's a question that I, if if I had known about ahead of time, I probably could have scratched my head and and come up with it with with something. Um, but I I think that the the interesting thing about art and literature is the way we tell stories through it. Um, I, I'm thinking again of as you said, the fall of Icarus. The the myth that it's based on and what a, what a powerful story it is that it's come down to us through the ages. So my favorite paintings are ones where you enter a story and it's not just the story that is given to you, but it's also the story that you feel happening kind of outside the frame. And, and that's one of the reasons I love um, The Fall of Icarus because there's a sense of everything that happened before and everything that will happen after, as well as in that particular moment in time. Thank you so much, Melanie. Uh, this novel, The Hair, opens in 1983. Our protagonist, Rosie, is riding in a car with Bennett, her boyfriend. Uh, he claims he is taking her to a party that might be attended by Mick and Keith, referencing, of course, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones. What actually happens is that Rosie and Bennett roll up onto an abandoned property Bennett picks up a mysterious package and then they leave. Later in the novel, Bennett references other celebrities. He tells an elaborate story, for example, about hanging out and doing drugs with Hunter S. Thompson and then stumbling, stumbling into Fidel Castro's dirty laundry, um, his little, literal 
dirty laundry, a pair of boxer shorts on the clothesline, I think. Um, there are other stories that Bennett tells about Truman Capote, uh, Hemmler, etc. Melanie, what can we learn about Bennett's character by these stories he is constantly telling about celebrity encounters or the possibility of celebrity encounters, such as this one with Mick Jagger and Keith Richards? So the first thing is that as a young woman, I, I had a boyfriend who, who kind of gaslighted me in this way. And you're so young that you, you don't imagine someone's going to lie to you because you just think people will tell the truth. And I will say that I started writing this book in uh, 2016, and we all know what happened in 2016. We got a major gaslighter uh, voted into the presidency. And this person continued to tell lies after lie after lie and these am amazing fabrications. And it's, it's, it's a sign of how ready we are to believe someone who has power over us. We don't imagine that someone's going to tell lies. And so that's how it was for Rosie. This was a personal story for me as being a young woman who had believed these lies. And then gradually you begin to find out that it's not true. Um, and this person, you know, these people who have power over you can be um, very clever in how they explain the lie. Um, and, you know, as we've seen now, we still have this person lying and there are still people out there believing it. So, yeah, that's how I'm going to answer that question, Jason. Right. Thank you so much, Melanie. Um, in this same opening scene, after Rosie discovers that there is no party and she and Bennett drive off in Bennett's BMW with this mysterious package that he has picked up, Rosie is drinking a bottle uh, of wine and Bennett grabs a cassette and puts it into the deck. And that cassette is Steely Dan. Uh, their song, Ricky Don't Lose That Number, soon begins to play on the car stereo. I feel like there is much I can tell by a person in 2021, uh, the present year as we sit here recording, if their music of choice is Steely Dan. What I am a little unsure about is what the choice of Steely Dan could tell us about a person in 1983, uh, when I was about as old as my son is right now. Is there anything we can learn about Bennett by his choice of a Steely Dan cassette in 1983? So I guess my question to you, Jason, is... What does it say to you about someone who's listening to Steely Dan in 2021? Like, what does that music mean to you? In 2021, I think it's someone who um, probably uh, is a little funny and appreciates um, the musicianship involved uh, in what's happening um, more than, say, just wanting to hear kind of a low-key yacht rockish type of song so steely dan was one of the bands that i just really loved you know there's a time when you begin to really appreciate music and you're i mean for me it really didn't happen until i was sort of 17 or 18 and and steely dan and at the early stones like sticky fingers like that was the time i understood how music could make you feel mm -hmm. and so um it was also you know, everyone was listening to that music at that time. And I wanted at this point in the novel to not give everything about Bennett away as something bad and horrible. You know, he had to have 
some appeal. Um, so we didn't just be like, why is she with this dirt bag? Like, you know, he he had to be someone who we would think, wow, he's really cool. You know, he listens to great music and he drives a BMW and, you know, he, 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 he can light a joint with one hand. You know, like these are the things that when you're an 18 year old girl seem really worldly and amazing. Um, and I, I love that song, that Ricky Don't Lose Your Lumber and Hey 19. Like I just still listen to those and... Um, if someone played those, I would immediately think that I had something in common with them. So I hope your readers who haven't listened to that music will like immediately go to iTunes. And it does iTunes even exist anymore. But anyway, wherever it is that one goes now to listen to that fantastic music. Yeah, iTunes is now Apple Music um, right. and Spotify, et cetera. But I was lucky enough to see Steely Dan right before Walter Becker passed away for uh, free as part of Ticketmaster's settlement related to their price gouging practices. And um, Steely Dan played most of Asia. It was an amazing concert. I'm very thankful for the opportunity. And I also do love listening to Steely Dan. Um, listeners, we are going to take a step away for a quick break and listen to a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Melanie Finn. The Bookin Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin', B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Melanie Finn, author of The Hair, which is published by our friends at $2 Radio. Melanie, I would like to talk about Rosie's grandmother. Rosie is a person who, in the beginning of this novel, is really best described by the people she keeps company with or the people who are influencing her as she sort of lets her personality take a backseat to whomever she is with in the moment. How does Rosie come to live with her grandmother? What happens to her parents? Her parents are uh, killed in a car accident. Uh, and, and I will say that um, this is sort of based on a story, uh, a woman I knew very in, in, in passing, but she told me the story about how she had lost her own. She was a very awkward woman, uh, found it very difficult to connect to people uh, and was very abrasive. Um, and she told me that when she was a young girl, her parents had been killed in a car accident and she had been sent to live with her aunt. And she remembered walking up the pathway and her aunt standing in the door at the end of the pathway uh, with a sort of look of um, oh, irritation that this young child was coming to disrupt her life. And um, this woman told me, you know, that that, had, that feeling had never left her of this unbelievable grief, abandonment and sorrow, and then the transition into, into this house where she clearly wasn't wanted. And I think a lot about that little girl walking up that lonely path 
and how that pathway through that house continued on like for the rest of her life. And she, she never really did what Rosie did, which is to find a way to connect in. Right. Thank you, Melanie. And continuing along these lines with Rosie's grandmother and Rosie's relationship with her, who Melanie is the giggle man and what can we interpret about Rosie's state of mind by her naming this person, the giggle man. So I am going to go out on a limb here and, uh, and admit that this is really personal. Mm. Um, I've said before, um, uh, that I can't, I, I usually find it difficult to write about a place until I've left it. Mm. Um, and I was, uh, sexually abused as a child. Um, and it's taken me a really long time, like 50 years to feel like I left that country. And that I've arrived at a place where I can look back and really assess the damage without feeling like I was still inside it. Um, so uh, um, the, the giggle man is the man who abuses Rosie on these Sunday afternoons in her grandmother's house. Um, and while my abuse was, was purely sexual I mean there's no such thing as purely sexual it's always emotional and psychological I, I also remember a, a friend of my brothers my older half brothers who pinned me down one day and just wouldn't stop tickling me and I remember vomiting um, because I, I just couldn't breathe and that feeling of um, being held captive by someone who would not stop who was predating on your body as a child who clearly knew that boundaries were being crossed and just felt they had no um, no desire to stop, to just keep going and to literally vomited on him and then he backed off. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Thank you uh, for sharing that, Melanie. I'm sorry that you went through that. And I, um, I'm glad that you are in a place where you can speak about it and write about it. Uh, thank you very much. There is an interesting scene where Rosie calls upon her art school teacher in the summertime. Uh, Rosie has received a full scholarship to a prestigious art school in New York City, and she presents a piece of art that she has been working on that features a pair of gloves. Uh, what are these gloves and what is happening in the conversation between Rosie and her instructor when they are discussing this piece of art that features these white gloves? The gloves, uh, so the gloves were worn by the giggle man um, when he would tickle her. Um, and there's a previous conversation um, in which she has with Hobie, uh, who's this very wealthy older, older man about what are gloves for? Um, and the idea is that, you know, are gloves to protect the wearer from getting dirty or are they to protect the object from getting dirty from the hands of the person wearing the gloves? So the gloves kind of in my mind became this strange interface. And I questioned why was the giggle man, you know, wearing the gloves? And when you look at the relationship between an abuser and the abused, um, there are all kinds of questions about, you know, who is, who is the dirtier person, right? And, you know, what are the barriers that are both trying to be erected and crossed within in that, that multiple layers, very nuanced layers between abuser and abused. The conversation that you're referencing um, between uh, Rosie and Ida, um, the Ida has obviously survived uh, the Holocaust 
Um, and it's kind of in my mind like um, uh, a Gertrude Stein figure. I, I really had in my mind that famous painting by Picasso of Gertrude Stein, which is just these very dark, blocky uh, blocky colors, very solid person. And clearly Ida sees Rosie has real talent and has accessed something deeply emotional in these gloves and wants to encourage it. And this is really the only encouragement that Rosie has ever had from, from anybody in her life. And it comes from this, this strange woman who paints these quite violent uh, um, paintings herself in the meatpacking area in New York. Right. Thank you so much, Melanie. Um, going back to Rosie's grandma for a second, uh, Rosie's grandma early in this novel has an aversion to New York city. Uh, and in the passage describing said aversion, there is a line. Uh, and that line is New York city was full of vulgar people, um, like Leona Helmsley and Donald Trump end quote. Um, I workshopped a story recently that in an allusion uh, to Dante's Inferno put Donald Trump in the um, circle of hell where greedy souls reside, the fourth circle of hell, if I'm not mistaken. Um, this greed is an attribute that you certainly could have ascribed to Donald Trump in 1983. Uh, but now that he has been president, and especially because the kind of president that he was, uh, putting Donald Trump into a work of literature in 2020 and 2021 carries a different weight than it would have, say, in uh, the early 80s. Is this something you were conscious of when you were writing this passage, the uh, literary weight of Donald Trump? Because he does come back up later in this novel as well. That's a good question, Jason. And I'm not entirely sure, um, you know, coming of age as I did in New York in the 90s, uh, in the 1980s, um, you know, Donald was really coming on the scene then. There was he and Ivana and they were everywhere. She had that crazy beehive hairdo. They were like these comic figures of, of they were cartoonish. And Leona Helmsley herself, you know, there's a famous story about how she would swim laps of her pool and have her servant, you know, feed her a fish at the end of the pool. Um, so these were also apocryphal. And I was aware as I put in his name that it has a different resonance now and a kind of a reminder of like, this is this is the who the guy was. Like, has he ever changed from that? And and I don't think there has been any progression. He's still that that vulgar shallow caricature who who wants nothing more than self-aggrandizement and, and money and um you know i'm 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 gonna just say it i just think we made a dreadful mistake mm -hmm. so um yes but i also wanted to be true to the to the era uh which was you know these people were i mean i could have said studio 54 but i didn't think that his grandmother would her, uh, rosie's grandmother would know about studio 54 and like you know bianca jagger or any of those people so Trump mm -hmm. and Trump and Leona Helmsley seem fairly obvious that a house housewoman in Lowell, Massachusetts would have heard of them. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um Melanie, I'm glad that you referenced Studio 54 because as a brief aside here at Quail Ridge Books, we have a setting where when you come in the door, we have a rope um, and you have to go through all kinds of things. And over the holidays, we often had a line out around the block. And so I often compared um, us to Studio 54 and not many people got the reference uh, this year in 2021. So thank you for that. Um, 
I want to talk about Bennett for just a brief moment. Bennett believes that uh, James Joyce is just Hemingway in a frilly shirt uh, for 500 pages. He goes on to say that no one has read Ulysses, that people just say they have read Ulysses. Uh, My question regarding this specific moment is, has Bennett read Ulysses? And is this critique of people who say they have read Ulysses really a subconscious critique of himself? Well, I have to admit, I haven't read Ulysses, right? But but in my defense, I have read The Brothers Karamazov. I, it took me three years, mm-hmm. but I, I persisted, and it was my third effort. And I have a joke with my brother-in-law who also read The Brothers Karamazov. Like, I think there's a very small club of people who have actually read The Brothers Karamazov. So I think there may actually be a small group of people who have actually read Ulysses as well. But... You know, it's kind of one of those things, like it's an affectation to say, oh, you know, like James, like James Joyce's Ulysses, where, unless, let's face it, unless you're a lit student or you've got, you know, some kind of illness where you can literally not go anywhere all day mm-hmm. for months on end, who has the time now to read these, these kind of books? Because they are so dense. There's no editing. It's like it's page after page. Even in Brothers Karamazov, I have to admit, I, there's a whole God part in the middle that I just was like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I've got other things to do. So books in themselves have changed. And I doubt Bennett has read it. Although there's part of me that thinks he he really was affected by books. I think there's part of Bennett that wants to be a better person who aspires to be that literary figure that Rosie sees him as. I think he probably is quite well read, but he's he's just lost the ability to differentiate who he wants to be from who he is and who, who he's able to be. Uh, so have you read Ulysses, Jason? I have, I actually, but I, as a literature student, and um, it was a whole course on Ulysses, so we read it over the course of a whole semester. As you're saying, like, you really have to devote a lot of time to it if it's something that you truly want to understand and not just read for the sake of saying that you read it. And t- do you think that's a fair assessment, that, that, that James Joyce is basically Hemingway in a frilly shirt for 500 pages? <laughs> Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, I think there's that James Joyce had a lot more going on, um, but I can appreciate that someone else would think that. And, um, you know, I similar to what you're saying about the Brothers Karamazov, though, in, in the God part, that's how I felt when I read War and Peace and I got to the end and it's like a 250 page long essay on Napoleon. Um, but there is a book, uh, My Struggle by Karl of Knausgaard that came out over the last decade, I would say that was published in six volumes that um, amazingly sold very well. And it's kind of the exact same thing. It's this huge, gigantic book that ends with a, you know, hundreds page long essay on Hitler. Um, so it's, it's interesting to think that people don't devote time to reading those kind of books now, but that one did very well. Um, yeah, but more about Bennett's relationship to literature. He does often judge people. Um, you know, he says, oh, we can't take this person seriously because they haven't read, you know, um, whatever it is, the weighty works of literature that he's speaking of. And um, it seems like he has often made up personal narratives based on the literature he is reading. I'm alluding to um, 
Tim O'Brien when that novel is found in his car. And then all of the sudden, um, he claims to be a Vietnam War vet. Can you go a little more into this aspect of Bennett's personality? So the interesting, last night I was watching uh, the latest version, Incarnation of Emma, the Jane Austen novel. And I sort of got to the end and I thought, oh, I just, I can't be bothered with this. Like white people in frilly dresses with lots of money. And it's a story of manners. I felt almost angry at the end of it that I'd spent two hours with this. It felt so irrelevant. But what was really clear, I was watching with my daughters and uh, they kept talking throughout the, the 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 story about people of a different level, and so the story really is not so much about manners; it's about snobbery. And having to explain this to my children that even in our society today, we make very very careful judgments about people on how they dress or how they speak, or I mean, people think that I'm brilliantly educated because I have a British accent, which is a load of you know, like I went through the American public school system and I and I like, you know, diss most of my classes at college. So I've, I'm like not that, I'm not Oxford educated. But um, so I, I think that for Bennett, uh, whether he comes from that upper class, which I believe that he does, um, he's trying to make judgments about people who he has no idea. You know, people of that wealthy class never meet people like Billy they might work for them, but they have no interaction with them. So they're, they're trying to figure out how you can pigeonhole people that you have no other information about. Um, so for Bennett, um, but and that's also like his own self-aggrandizement. Well, I must be better than this other person because I've read all these books. And I, and I will add that the, um, the Capote incident actually did happen to a friend of mine. Yeah. So I've, 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 I've magpied that. Nice. Good to know. Thank you so much, Melanie. And finally, uh, I could talk about this novel for a long while. I don't want to spoiler anything for our listeners, though, um, as I do intend to sell many copies of this novel. Uh, and I do hope to have you back on, Melanie, to talk about your other books uh, sometime in the future. Um, this question will seem like a bit of a spoiler, but listeners, it's really not. Uh, there is a section later in the novel when Rosie finds herself in this house in Vermont with no heat and no electricity. Uh, the snow and wind are heavy and vicious. She finds herself realizing that she does not understand money, that she doesn't know how much anything costs excepting abortions and firewood. Um, how did she find herself at this point, I believe 20 years old or close to it, without understanding how much anything costs excepting firewood and abortions and what uh, avoiding spoilers as much as possible is the path ahead for her? Um, and it, again, I think this may be me interjecting myself into the, into the book here. Um, that certainly I'm now 56, right? So the kind of time that I was raised in, the kind of background that I was raised in, which was, you know, very aspirational bourgeois, like my family really wanted to be upper middle class, but we were probably more like middle class. And women, girls, were not taught about, taught, taught about money because it wasn't something we would ever have to think about. You know, we would marry someone who had money and 
and uh, that that would be the problem taken care of. Um, so, you know, I went to NYU uh, really not understanding money. You know, there was money from my father. It came to pay my expenses every month. And I kind of, I'd always had part-time jobs, but I had never really understood the importance of money, the empowerment of money and the disempowerment of money. And I, I also think that, uh, you know, when we look at culturally, um, you can understand all you want in the world about money, but if you don't have any, it's meaningless knowledge. You know, to understand how the stock market works, when you can barely pay your bill at the grocery store, you know, when you're trying just to get by month to month, talking to people about savings or, you know, IRAs, it, it doesn't make any sense. So, so Rosie's lack of knowledge about money is both an, an immediate statement on, on, her, on her education, how nobody's really tried to equip her for life. And also a statement on how poor people are really disempowered in our culture and somehow blamed for it. Like it's your fault that you are poor and not rich. Um, and, and that blame comes from the rich. And I'm just going to make a, you know, like this whole trickle down theory is just like trickle down piss. And, and also, you know, what is trickling down is actually shame. So the, the shaming of Rosie for not understanding anything, but, but, but firewood and abortions. Um, and then even when she does understand money, she never has it. Hmm. Right. Thank you so much, Melanie, for that answer. And thank you for writing this wonderful book. It is one of those books that I will be talking about for the rest of this year and likely beyond. I do believe, Melanie, that you have many wonderful things ahead of you. I cannot wait to read the rest of your books. What else can I say about this book, listeners, other than it made me want to read everything else that Melanie Finn has written. I'm certain that many of you have experienced this with an author before, and you know how exciting as a reader that this type of moment can be. I've been speaking with Melanie Finn, author of The Hair, which is published by our friends at $2 Radio. Melanie, thank you very much for joining me. Jason, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Once again, I would like to thank Melanie Finn for joining me. Copies of The Hair can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been 